everybody. Welcome in. This is our August edition of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. I am Ben Wilson, my co-host Kaylee Bynes. She is off enjoying a lovely midsummer vacation as right now we're bringing you as something we did last year in our first season. We're doing it again here for season two. It is a best of giving you a sense of what we do here on the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. If you have not had a chance to check us out yet, we have clips from a bunch of our guests so far from this current season that I think you'll really enjoy. We had a great time compiling these last year, and the same can be said for this year. As always, our podcast being brought to you by a couple of great sponsors in Amgen and Genentech, as we've got a number, like I mentioned, of our guests going to join us here today. And uh, the first one we figured we'd kick it off with, again, we'll give you about five to ten minutes of each of the last six or seven or so guests that we have had before we reconvene, final few episodes of this second season, which will get started up next month in September. What uh, One of the conversations I really enjoyed, and of course we enjoyed all of them, but an uh, outstanding guest we had, which we'll kick off here, was Dr. Velma Mockett, who is a mental health expert, also uh, deals with vasculitis as well, as both a patient and uh, as a doctor as well, as she is one of our, uh, our multiple guests we've had from north of the border in Canada, uh, Dr. Mockett made, a, I thought, just a great analogy about living in a construction zone when living and managing vasculitis, and uh, she kind of explained that a little bit, and how we as both patients, as physicians, and as caregivers have to be uh, open about that process and, and understanding of that element of living with uh, vasculitis. So that's how we'll kick things off. Again, I'll be back, kind of talk you through all of our different segments we've got for you today. In our August edition, it's a best of here, season two of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. The thing about construction zones is that they are inherently messy. <laughs> it's not, there's, uh, there's debris and dust that's flying everywhere. It's, it's not supposed to be a, a super clean and controlled job site. So I, when, when, I, when I was watching that, uh, Dr. Mockett, I, I saw you make that, uh, you know, that, that comparison. I, I just... I feel like that's such a, a brilliant way of saying it because it is it is true and, and uh, life is nuanced and our journeys are are not uh, black and white. There's there's a lot that goes on and and I think that's a good by by expressing that I think it is it is a positive thing for our doctors who listen to this to, to know and, and to help them shape a little bit the way they can just approach uh, treatment as a whole when it comes to that that post remission phase and and you're you're on you're on the treatment but now it's what's that next step. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I, I love that analogy of a construction zone. And, and the reason I use that is, like, sometimes people think that everything has to happen all at once. Like, you know, why am I not feeling better? It's like, you know, Kelly said, like, you know, you think, well, why is this person in remission? I'm not. And, and that has been something that I've had to sort of keep really under control is the fact that I have continued to struggle with it. And, and I've watched other people go in remission and things like that. So, um you know, the construction zone analogy just kind of like made it cemented it for me is just kind of thinking about this is a construction zone. I am, I am, you know, under construction and then, you know, I can't go at 90 clicks in, in a 50 zone or in a construction zone. Like, you know, I have to kind of take it slowly one step at a time. And so it, it reminds me to just drive with, go with caution and, and don't be, you know, too quick to judge myself or even others. I mean, would I, I would love for doctors to begin to look at vasculitis, you know, and look at patient as a holistic being and to begin to look at vasculitis from a holistic point of view and do integrative medicine and not just, and I, and I would like for them to be able to not just 
think about people from an acute care perspective. I think too often our system is, is catering more so towards acute care. And so for those of us with chronic illness, we not only just fall through the gap, we are in the pothole. We are like deep in the pothole. People like to say, well, you fall through the crack. There's no crack, there's a pothole. And nobody wants to admit that. We are in the pothole of care because we have chronic illness and you go to emerge and then they say to you, well, um, this is emergency and I'm an emergency doctor. So I, I don't know what to do. I once had an emergency doctor tell me, well, you should just do the FODMAP diet. And I just sort of look at and smile. And another one once said to me, even after telling me that my heart rate was 148 and that I and recognizing that I had a high fever, he just looked at me and said to me, this is an emergency and I'm an emergency doctor. I, I don't know anything about vasculitis and discharge me. Not even think about, well, should I consult with a rheumatologist or anything like that, right? So I would like for the medical field to kind of think about things, not just from an acute care perspective, but recognize that, you know, people come to you for multiple reasons. And we come to you when we are at the most vulnerable state. And and some people have acute care concerns and some people have chronic care concerns. And I, and I recognize that when you're an emergency, you know, people are, you know, really looking at acute things like a heart attack and things like that. But but it's to also look at us as as human beings who are going for an experience and and that you know we also need that sort of like concern and that care and, and not just kind of look at us as our case like people just look at you and they say well you're a complex case and they sort of dismiss you and I think because we accept that we learn to sort of like internalize that and we make that part of who we are and so we don't advocate for ourselves we don't speak out. We don't talk about our illness narrative. Illness have its own narrative, and we don't we don't talk about that. We don't talk about you know the experiences that we're having because we we are ashamed and we we are meant to feel ashamed and we uh, we feel embarrassed about talking about it. We don't want our friends or our family to know. So I think one of the things that I have just said is like no, I will I want people to know how I feel, and if I feel angry, I'm gonna say I feel angry, and if I feel irritable, I'm gonna say I feel irritable, and you may not like it. But that's how I feel. Am I going to be destructive in my behavior? No, but I am going to acknowledge how I feel. And part of being in a construction zone is when things get messy, they don't just run away. They try to problem solve. They try to figure out, okay, do we need to put steel beam? Do we need to put some concrete? Do we need to do something? So they try to fix the problem and they try to kind of problem solve. So I think it's just about, you know, doctors and therapists and everybody involved in that person's care, um, helping to sort of like, you know, kind of think about how do we find solutions to some of the issues that you're experiencing? Um, how do we, you know, empower you to make a difference in your own life so that you can look at yourself from a strength point of view as opposed to a weakness point of view? I think one of the things that I'm learning is that when we see ourselves or when someone sees us as only one thing and one thing only, which is the disease, that's who we become. Uh, and so I've just refused to become the disease. And I, I often will remind myself that I am not the disease. And I, and I actually wrote a piece on, on, on that, you know, a couple of years ago, um, talking about I am not the disease. And, and it's, it was important for me to write that just because I wanted my friends and my families to know that, right? Because sometimes people start to sort of treat you differently um, because, you know, by virtue of having a disease, you, you have become fragile. And you've become incapable of thinking for yourself, of feeling and, and knowing what you feel. So I think it's important for us to understand what it is that we're going through, to really 
take the time to empower ourselves, to make a difference in our lives, to know what we're experiencing, to understand emotion, to talk about it, to talk about mental health, not be embarrassed to talk about mental health. I think we have to bring mental health to the forefront of vascularized discussion. If we don't, we will, we will find ourselves many years to come with a number of people with vasculitis who are having significant mental health challenges. And then they will become those mental health illness because that's how they're going to be seen. Um, and then when they will be talking about the experiences that they're having or what they, the symptoms that they're feeling, nobody's going to take them seriously. Like, what happened to you, Kaylee? Because people are going to think, well, you know, they're depressed. Um, and, and they're going to be very condescending in telling you that, that, that you're depressed. So I think, you know, those of us who, who have the capacity to do so, who have the voice, we need to use that voice and use that platform to really bring mental health in vasculitis to the forefront, to really advocate for mental health research in vasculitis and to really advocate for funding to do those mental health research in vasculitis. There's, there's very few research on mental health and vasculitis. So mental health, quality of life, well-being, emotional health and well-being. We need to understand those things. We need to explain those things. I, I, I try to do that in, in some of the webinars that I've had. But, you know, of course, you know, you can't reach everyone and you, you can, you know, you, you can only do so much. But, but of course, would I like to do more webinars and stuff? And would I like to do more education thing? Sure, if the opportunity presents itself for me to um, educate people and to support people of course I, I will do so but I think it's important for us to think about you know vasculitis does change the plot it takes up a lot of real estate in, in, in someone's life and it does change the plot and begin starting change is a daunting task and to tell someone that they have to transform and become a different kind of themselves a different kind of I had to become a different kind of me I'm not the same person I was five years ago you, you have to be open and willing to, to transform and to evolve and, and to let go. You have to be willing to accept. And most times people say to me, well, if I accept, I'm saying that I am the disease. No, if you accept, you're saying the contrary. You're saying I'm not the disease. You're accepting the reality of the situation for what it is. And you're recognizing what your limitations are. But you're also recognizing your strength and your resilience capacities. And you're saying, you know, I am going to evolve and transform and become the best butterfly that I can be. You know, I'm not going to remain a, cap a caterpillar. I'm going to become a butterfly. And the best one that I can become, the best version of me that I can become given the circumstances. So that's what acceptance is. It's about recognizing, you know, the role that those, the disease is playing, the impact it's having on your life, and, and, rec and recognizing, you know, you have experienced some losses, but you can still evolve and move beyond that. Thanks again to Dr. Mockett, an outstanding episode that we were able to record with her. Our next segment is with Kaylin Young, who has been uh, the leader of the vasculitis' VPPRN and does outstanding work with a bunch of patient-centered research. That was really the theme of the episode we had with her back in March, and we talked a lot about uh, community polls that the Vasculitis Foundation had recently conducted talking about patients and potential hesitancy to getting the COVID vaccine. It's, it's uh, certainly still relevant now, even though we recorded this back in late February when the vaccine was first rolling out and being available to patients, but still an interesting conversation to have and some great insight into a lot of the research going on behind the scenes at the Vasculitis Foundation. So you were, were a big part, Kaylin, of, of this recent community poll where you, you reached out to, I think it was, what, 1,700 people or so talking about 
uh, getting their thoughts on, on the vaccine, if they received it yet, how they felt about getting it. So from your standpoint, kind of sitting there and, and breaking down all the data so far, where do we stand right now in the rare disease community, specifically with vasculitis patients, as far as their education on the vaccine and, and progress on getting it so far? Uh, so that's an excellent question. It's also a little loaded because the education around the vaccine is limited, you know, kind of for everyone as well as physicians. So it's, you know, we have, we're continually updating the information as it comes in and, and continually grabbing as much data as possible to make sure that we're making the best decisions for our community. Uh, so what's interesting is about, about these community polls is that they were a way for, you know, there three to five questions in total, but it was a way for us, the Vasculitis Foundation and the Vasculitis Patient Powered Research Network to really get a pulse on where our community is and how they're feeling about uh, getting the COVID vaccine and, and if they're planning to, and what might be the reasons if they aren't planning to, what are those reasons, like why are they not? choosing to do that. So we had 1,700 people participate in this community poll um, with all vasculitity. So it was across all the different types of vasculitis that participated. Um, and within the first hour, we had 800 people that had responded uh, once we wow. disseminated the poll. So yeah, like really compliments to the community, did an amazing job, yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, for, there are several, there were, you know, 30% um, uh, of those who responded had had one or more uh, doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. So, and of the 77 that plans to get the COVID vaccine, only 20, only 20, there were 77% that planned to get the COVID-19 vaccine and only 23% did not plan or are unsure about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where the community poll lies in terms of people are getting it or not. I think that, you know, if you'd like me to kind of go into the reasons across the board in aggregate of the, the top three reasons why people are choosing or are unsure about getting the vaccine, if that would be helpful. Sure, I think so. And I also would, would love to hear a little bit about kind of that risk of negative reinforcement, because when I saw that poll come out, I yeah. was so excited. I was like, you know, it's great that we're collecting these data. But then I was kind of nervous, you know, if people see, oh, wow, 23% don't want the vaccine, why? You know, do you think that that's going to cause any nervousness or reticence on the part of patients seeing those kind of numbers? Well, so that's a, that's a, a brilliant question. I mean, I think that there is, there is, Certainly it might, but the 23% also includes those that are unsure. So it's not that they aren't necessarily not planning on getting it, it's just they're unsure right now, which I think is where a lot of people are. And I think in the grand, you know, kind of uh, situated in our community in a, in a uh, grander sense, I think that people are able to see that there are lots of things that are going to intersect with their decision to uh, get the COVID-19 vaccine or not. Um, and I think, you know, as the Vasculitis Foundation, as a patient advocacy organization, trying to put out the most recent materials and education around the COVID-19 vaccine. And uh, I know that, that the uh, latest 
Vasculitis Foundation educational webinar on the COVID-19, um, as well as the COVID-19 vaccine was this past, you know, Saturday on February 27th. And they, they touched a little bit on, you know, Dr. Merkel and uh, Dr. Anisha Dua had touched a little bit on the COVID-19 vaccine with the information that they have. So hopefully with a combination of education materials and then understanding that that 23% also includes those that are just unsure, um, that, it, that it helps people guide people to make their own best decision for themselves. And with recognizing that people are worried about different things. So I, I, I hope that it's more informational and uh, rather than influencing how people feel about getting the vaccine. That's great. Uh, what were some of the reasons that people gave that either led to reticence or just kind of uncertainty? Yeah, uh, so the, the top three reasons, you know, the first one that's, you know, and this was uh, the primary reason, overflowingly slow, was that patients were worried that the COVID-19 vaccine will make their vasculitis or other autoimmune condition worse. That was the, the number one fear around um, getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, the second was concerns about how new and uh, how new the the vaccine is, and concerns about how well researched it is, especially in the context of uh, rare autoimmune and systemic inflammatory diseases. And then the third was worried about getting the COVID nineteen vaccine because of the medications that they're on that may lower their immune system. Yeah, all definitely reasons that I think I've seen. In, in some of our Facebook groups and, and other things that come up where, uh, you know, a lot of patients are kind of giving each other advice um, and, yeah. you know, hopefully we all eventually talk to doctors about it. That's the goal. Yes, <laughs> but, that is, but it does, that is it's conversations that we are mm -hmm. having. Um, so I, that's really interesting to see it manifest that way. Um, yeah. I guess also in addition to the COVID-19 vaccine, you also recently did one about the flu vaccine, correct? Yes, we did. Uh, we wanted to know that that one was done in December, and we wanted to know again, kind of where our community is and where there may be educational needs, where there may be, you know, um, misinformation and or information that we would love to provide out uh, as the Vasculitis Foundation. So through the VPPRN, the Vasculitis Patient Powered Research Network, we disseminated a community poll. Uh, not only to members of the VPPRN, but to our entire uh, VF community. And from that, we found, you know, that, that there was, you know, a considerable percentage of people who were not getting the flu vaccine. Um, and so we asked some of our vasculitis experts, uh, including Dr. Banerjee, who she runs the um, Penn Medical Center Vasculitis Center. And so we asked her to answer specifically for, for, um, for vasculitis patients, you know, can we bust some of those myths? You know, can we help for the top three reasons why people aren't getting a flu vaccine? Can we help address that with the most accurate information? And so it's been a really great opportunity, one, to have this, you know, kind of conversation with our entire patient community, and then two, to be able to respond to that, um, the results of that data and, and, and provide educational and up-to-date materials that are specific for those with vasculitis. 
Our next guest in this Season 2 edition of the Best Of for the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. You could call him a true Vasculitis Visionary as somebody who has contributed so much to the world of research, not only in Vasculitis, but in uh, other ways, is Dr. Leonard Calabrese, who was uh, so kind to give us some time talking just in general about the intersection of infections and vasculitis. Kaylee Bynes, my co-host, uh, had uh, some, some great uh, background as well, talking about this as a, a Master's of Public Health student in the past, and uh, she asked him about a lot of his thoughts about the intersection of infections and their possible connection to triggering vasculitis and autoimmune conditions. So I'm actually so interested in the connection between the two. Um, as some of our listeners might know, my background is in environmental health um, and my master's thesis was actually on potential environmental triggers for ANCA-associated vasculitides. Um, and something that kept coming up was infection and whether some sort of infection could have caused an overreaction of the immune system and somehow led <laughs> through one way or yeah. another to, to vasculitis development. Is that something that you come across? Do patients ask a lot about cause? Um, have you had experience with, you know, trigger type of research questions? Yeah, I mean, every disease, uh, you know, we're looking for the etiology. And, you know, as it turns out, um, you know, things are never as simple as you aspire them to be. And that uh, most uh, immune-driven diseases, whether they're autoimmune or autoinflammatory, uh, represent a combination of genetic factors, um, and rarely are these diseases monogenic. That means Mendelian, or you have a strong family history that you know your mother, or grandfather, or sister, or brother had something. Uh, but what we call um, polygenomic, where many, many different genes, which are individually clinically silent, may lead to predisposition. Now, in the, the terms of etiology, it then re requires something else. And uh, there's a term that I like to use. It's kind of a neologism of biology uh, called exposomal factors, exposome uh, is all of the environmental factors that in, that interact with our biology. It may be something as simple as a lupus patient getting sun exposure and then flaring their disease. Uh, it may be cigarette smoking and as a huge risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis. The questions in vasculitis, you know, range across the spectrum of diseases, you know, the, the closest disease to having an infectious etiology has been giant cell arteritis. And I have been involved in that search for many, many years. And we are no further toward that uh, uh, goal than we were many years ago. Yet it appears, uh, and I think that many different infections may be a trigger. Um, certain vasculitides are driven by viruses. Hepatitis C was the, and hepatitis B are the clearest um, uh, uh, examples of that. Ankyvasculitis, um, you know, the exposomal factors that have been found, you know, include interaction with, you know, particulate uh, uh, pollution, um, some geographic clustering that may interact with genes. 
And then there's uh, certain infections, um, uh, including this peculiar uh, relationship to CMV, um, a ubiquitous infection. 70% of us as adults have had CMV. And, and you know why does that cause it in one person versus another? I'll, I'll stretch one more disease and talk about lupus, which can have vasculitis as part of its pathology. And there's some fascinating evidence that viral factors may be drivers of lupus, and they may be something as common as EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, which 95% of us have. But if you have the wrong set of genes, that ubiquitous virus may be a driver. So that, that's the, the playing field and sorting this out, uh, thinking that you're gonna find a infection causing a condition uh, is you know, probably not gonna happen. Just an outstanding episode that was with Dr. Calabrese. And we, of course, encourage you to go back, listen to any of our episodes that you've missed. They range from about 40 minutes to an hour and provide you some outstanding insight uh, like those from Dr. Calabrese. Uh, still a couple more segments, though, as we continue the best of here from season two of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. Another conversation that I just thought was outstanding, Dr. Sebastian Satui, who has been a longtime uh, friend of the podcast and was able to give us some insights as well. He recently uh, had a, a move in work. And so we talked a lot about just in general, multidisciplinary collaboration throughout the world of vasculitis with Dr. Satui explaining here kind of his motivation behind his work and the new move for him, as well as the current VASC Strong study on preventing patient frailty that he played a big role in helping develop? So I think, um, well, certainly um, the, the, the VF fellowship and this year's VF fellowship has given me a lot of opportunities with regards to like tailoring more my, my last two years of training into the specific care of patients with vasculitis and has certainly supported me in kind of allow, giving me more time in order to kind of devote myself to the projects that, um, you know, I, the pandemic certainly also kind of like not, I would say to some degree kind of caused some, uh, led to some restructuring, uh, but at the same time opened a lot of other kind of um, opportunities as well that I, I think rheumatologists overall have been very active and, and certainly so have I with it, always a specific kind of vasculitis focus as well. Um, a lot of some of the projects that uh, the initial two projects that I started with, which I'm uh, now kind of uh, wrapping up and kind of going into the next steps uh, with our one is uh, one make focus uh, that also has I think was in my in both my mind and my mentor's mind here Dr. Spira was something really fed and kind of reinforced by just our, our experience with patients is regarding the 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 importance or kind of exploring the the the, the importance or the impact of frailty in patients with um, vasculitis particularly, uh, which we can certainly talk more on that. Uh, and we have kind of now an, an exciting study with the BPPRN trying to better describe the impact in, in patient of frailty in patients with uh, living with vasculitis that, that I know frailty has a strong word, is a strong word and probably has a little bit of a negative connotation, but it's, it's a very important process that I think englobes 
several kind of aspects of the life of people who live with chronic diseases such as vasculitis, and it's very important to actually find better ways to address. Uh, for that, certainly we need to describe it more. Um, so that was one, and I can kind of go a little more into details. And the other, the other work that I've been doing with collaboration with some of kind of our colleagues here at HSS and OIL Cornell was looking at a specific pro uh, protein that's called mitochondrial DNA and trying to assess its use as a biomarker in patients with GPA. So those were the two initial projects that kind of I walked into the vasculitis um, fellowship with. And as I said, certainly things come up, ideas come up. Uh, I, I usually probably sometimes have the mistake of getting involved in too many things at the same time, but so far things are have worked. Uh, and then of course a pandemic happened. And with the pandemic, um, I think rheumatologists globally uh, were pushed into trying to find all the answers that both our patients and I, and I had and, and we had, and therefore some other kind of ventures and, and collaborations um, happened as well, which probably which have led to studies and, uh, and trying to kind of be able to get that information that, you know, as, as we were talking initially, it, it seems it's been forever, but it hasn't hasn't been that long since we started with a, since the pandemic started, and we certainly have come a long way with getting information for our patients, for better understanding of, of what what is going on, what do we need to be concerned about. Um, so that is this extra kind of uh, focus of research that I've had and during my my last year or so of the of the vasculitis fellowship. So it's different lines uh, of research all going in, uh, fortunately in the same kind of direction going forward, um, which is which is exciting uh, and has certainly kept me kept me busy as well. And that of course, always in line with being involved in the care of patients with vasculitis, which is again, the most important thing. And that's what, what I'm, what, why I'm doing what I'm doing is, is, is just that clinical kind of interaction that interaction with patients, which is what motivates us all. And last, but certainly not least, and we bring this up last because it was the most recent edition of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. We went back north of the border to Canada to visit with an outstanding guest in Dr. Arori Fifima. And we talked a lot about patient education and vasculitis registries with Dr. Fifima, as well as some additional information and insights into current vaccines and uh, antibodies that they, uh, they provide for patients. So another uh, very apt episode that we uh, we brought to you and excited to bring another snippet of that into this best of clips. Uh, here is Dr. Aroy Fifima. Dr. Fifima, you also said that you have done some work on how COVID has affected uh, the approach to treatment for vasculitis patients, especially those who are in remission. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Um, well, what I've observed really is that um, when I, I did some uh, literature search with the group looking at the, the risk of severe COVID in our patients with uh, uh, autoimmune diseases. And uh, so that was a group of rheumatologists who are actually based in uh, the Caribbean, where our, our, um, I'm from. And we have formed an association called the Caribbean uh, Rheumato um, Association for Rheumatology. And we wanted to have a, um, some document to refer to, to counsel our patient on um, how to um, manage their therapy, their, inform them about their risk. And what uh, my portion was actually to look at the risk of severe COVID 
um, in this population group. And what I've uh, uh, found, although very limited information, is that uh, rituximab and prednisone were the two main drugs that may increase the risk of severe COVID. And uh, a lot of our patients who have vasculitis, uh, in particular GPA, are treated with rituximab and many patients with GPA and MPA are also treated with uh, a long course of, of prednisone. So in that population, um, in addition to the other risk factors that have been identified, this is an added burden. And the difficulty for us has been to really try to mitigate the risk while preventing flares of disease. So for this reason, um, I've tried to reduce as much as possible the dose of prednisone. Uh, it sounds like the cutoff for severe COVID has been estimated at uh, 10 milligram and more of prednisone. So I'll try to, I try to maintain the patients uh, as much as possible below that, that uh, level. But the main problem has been uh, managing the treatment with rituximab. So there, there's been some issues with logistics, uh, of course, because of the infusions where um, access to community clinics were um, uh, reduced because of COVID. So a bit of a delay sometimes in infusion, but the most important is really the risk of, uh, uh, because of the B cell depletion uh, induced by rituximab, the concern that the response to immunization may not be optimal. And uh, also the dosing of the treatment based on timing of immunization. So what we have um, come up with, and, and, and also this is uh, supported by the recommendation from ACR and ULR, which are the two main organization for um, rheumatology physician, is to really distance the immunization for COVID from the infusion of rituximab by at least five months and if possible longer. Uh, recently ULR um, was just done virtually and uh, they did comment that uh, in some of the reports, the case reports, there is a, a low uh, response in terms of antibody response to um, immunization even after six months of, of delaying rituximab. So I think that's a, a big challenge because we obviously want to protect our patient, but at the same time, the immunization uh, uh, response uh, and protection against the virus may not be optimal. And that's something that patients have to be aware of that they actually have to time their immunization time uh, uh, in relationship to the rituximab infusion by at least five to six months. So that means delaying a bit the, the infusion and also because of the two dose requirement, uh, there has to be at least four weeks uh, between the two doses. But in countries like us, for example, in Canada, uh, patients were delayed uh, for the second dose. So we actually had to advocate for I, our, our patients. I wrote to the health minister of Alberta to ask them to make an exemption for our patients so they can get their second dose within the four weeks time frame to allow them to get the treatment uh, in a manner that's not too delayed. So this is the main thing that uh, I'm concerned about and we're probably going to have a, a look when we can at the antibody response uh, by measuring you know, uh, the antibody uh, in the patients who have had their immunization and who are treated with rituximab. I think that's going to be a very important piece of information 
that we can uh, get um, from the research that we're doing right now. Wow, that's uh, a little bit frightening to think about the limited antibody response. I know that was something that came up a lot in our um, different patient support groups online. So it's it's interesting that there are now data that that seem to suggest that. Uh, did, did any of your patients express concerns over that? Or was it something that you felt that you really had to bring up with them and let them know? Because I know there's kind of a mix with the vasculitis community of people who uh, you know, really want to know everything that they can and people who just need to just listen to their doctors and, and go from there and not really concern themselves with all of the what ifs. So did patients come to you with questions about timing of the vaccine or were, were you really volunteering that and saying, hey, you know what, you need to really consider uh, your, your treatments and your vaccination schedule. Yeah, we're, we were very proactive because of the, the fact that I had identified this issue. We actually um, mail all our patients, sent a, a, a mail to all our patients who are on rituximab to inform them that they cannot uh, get their immunization immediately, that they needed to contact the clinic to understand the timing. And we also provided some information in the letter saying that they shouldn't get it uh, earlier than five months post their last infusion. So that led to a lot of work and we had many calls because it was a bit difficult for a certain patient to understand the, the, the logistic of doing that. Um, one of my patients uh, is a physician and he actually also had the concern uh, regarding the B-cell uh, response and, and uh, he, he was one of the uh, the patient who helped me with the letter to the health minister and advocacy to get the second dose as soon as possible. Um, and uh, probably we're looking at his antibody response now to see if he has mounted a response to the, the vaccine. So there was some calls, but not that many actually, I think because we actually realized that there was a need that patient may not be aware of. And in even the health uh, system, the, the clinics were not aware of that. So we had to, act to, to um, unfortunately, some patients did have their vaccine too early because there was no awareness of this uh, limitation. But I think we capture most of them and, and uh, we're still going through that process of immunization um, with uh, ongoing questions and phone calls for patients. Again, thanks to Dr. Fifi Ma for an outstanding episode. That was, again, the last one that we had released back in our July edition of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. Also, thanks to the, the guests as a whole who have contributed here in season number two. Mentioned Dr. Sebastian Satui, Dr. Leonard Calabrese, Kaylin Young, and we kick things off with Dr. Velma Mockett to lead off this special best of here at the midway point of our season two of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. Kaylee will be back next month. We will have a new episode fresh for you at the start of September as we round out our second season. I'm Ben Wilson saying so long again. If you missed any of our previous episodes, be sure wherever you subscribe to go through, you can find every single one available from both season one and season two. Mm -hmm.